Welcome to the Insecurity Project Podcast. Most people think the best you can do with insecurity is mask it, manage it, or medicate. I'm convinced this is a problem that can be solved for good, and that's what this show is all about. Join me for weekly 10-minute Tuesday episodes, live coaching demonstrations, and world-class interviews on the subject of overcoming insecurity. Now on to today's show. Friends, welcome to another episode of Insecurity Project Podcast. Today I'm with Australian business author royalty, Andrew Griffith. And I mean that sincerely. This, this guy's the real deal, and that's a, that's a rare thing in a sea of wannabes and tryhards. Uh, Andrew has has proven himself to to be genuine and to contribute meaningfully. He's written 14 books, although I saw on your Wikipedia page that it, it ripped you off a couple. Even the fact you got a Wikipedia page, extraordinary. But uh, <laughs> 14 books published in 65 countries around the world doing some amazing work. Uh, so, Andrew, it's just a real treat to have you on the show. I'm very excited to get to talk to you about your journey. So thank you for being here. Awesome to be here and, and a, great, a great topic you know, to be talking about today, you know, we always see the end journey, you know, where someone's arrived and, you know, it's the bits in the between that have obviously, you know, had so much meaning. So I'm really looking forward to this, Jamin. Yeah, thank you. And you're right. It, it is that it's, you know, you've achieved a, a measure of success and effectiveness and contribution in the world, which you are to be credited for. But it's, I'm, I'm very interested in how you got there and the, the mm. points along the journey where you nearly didn't get there. I, uh, I just finished um, Bob Odenkirk's memoirs. I don't know if you're a Better Call Saul fan or a Breaking Bad guy. Uh, yeah, I, I know of it. Yeah, I love it, but I, not enough to to be you know deeply immersed in it, but enough to uh, to 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 know what it's about and to enjoy that. <laughs> okay. Um, he starts his memoirs by saying, "Look, obviously I succeeded. That's why you're reading this book because I I I got a career defining role." Um, but but that's the least interesting part of my whole journey. You'll want to know about all the times I didn't get the role and the times that I struggled and nearly gave up. So let me tell you about all those stories. So it's a lovely way to frame mm-hmm. um, some memoirs, a beautiful book. Uh, but but on to you. Can you can you tell us about where it started for you and and particularly, uh, you know, how your parents model and and their relationship, how how that impacted you as a young boy growing up in the home that you were gifted into. Uh, and tell us about your early years mm. and what it was like growing up as you. So I, I guess for me, I, I had, you know, one of those, you know, textbook, unconventional kind of childhoods. And and um, so, you know, I, I was, my parents abandoned me when I was six months old and my sister was 18 months old and they left us uh, with an old lady, you know, who kind of lived up the road. And uh, and never came back, and uh, and so this was I was born in 1966, so you know this was in 1966 Melbourne, and um and for some reason this this old lady who was 70 at the time took us in, and um and we ended up you know living with her, so that that was an unusual shape. Like I haven't got a birth certificate. I don't actually know when I was born or where I was born. You know uh, any of those kind of details, but but we we ended up with this lady because it. it it was a different time, you know, like on, on reflection, you know, you go now, if someone left a child, the government would be and there'd be, you know, people would be stepping in and rah, rah. But of course, the reality of it, like in the 60s, it, it wasn't that tight. You know, all of a sudden this old lady and she might have babysat us for a while. I don't know. But anyway, we ended up with her. 
stuff happened. We ended up over in Perth um, growing up and it, it was it was a challenging childhood. You know, she 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 was elderly and, and I, look, there, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of there was a lot of um, uncomfortable stuff that happened in that household that that, you know, you can turn around and say, what a horrible old lady. And, and, and I mean, like, you know, boiling water. And, and I, I slept outside. I never slept inside the house until I was like 12. I slept on a mattress in the backyard, you know, under, underneath the house or on a, wherever we were living because she had all kinds of issues about men or whatever. So my earliest memories were just I'd wander around the streets of Perth as a toddler, basically just... You know, and it's amazing that no one ever, you know, picked me up and did bad things to me or or just I didn't get killed or whatever it was. But but it, that kind of life was complicated. She had um, it, she she was sliding into dementia, you know, as, as, an, as a grown up. I can obviously understand that. And she was filled with hate and rage. And, and you kind of get it. She she had lost three husbands in three different wars. She'd lost six brothers, her father, her aunt. She was born in 1896. So think think about that. Having someone looking after you was born in eighteen ninety six, and she'd had uh, a, just a a really really hard life. And uh, and so I can talk about the 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 violence and the neglect and the all of that kind of stuff. But she was a seventy year old lady who was not well, who who still took us in and cared for us, uh, which is feels like you know she sounds a bit like a bad lady, but she obviously wasn't. You know that stuff. So. Um, and, and you know she was a kleptomaniac. She you know she would be an unbelievable pickpocket. She would swear like a, a Melbourne wharfie. She was four foot tall and just it was a bizarre life. But anyway, that aside, at one day she fractured my skull. She hit me with a with a big lump of wood, and that's that's when I had to go into hospital and emergency, and and that's when the welfare got involved, and uh, and we ended up my sister and I in and out of care and you know, state kind of places until we finally got adopted by a couple, which that was a whole other disaster. And uh, and that then turned even uglier than before. So so right up until I was around 15 or 16, I was kind of fending for myself. And I, I went down the predictable path of drugs and alcohol and, you know, crime and, you know, looking to fit in and uh, and trying to, to become a part of something um, that worked, which... It's a very powerful thing. I mean, it's easy to say it's a bit of a cliched start when you hear about kids going off the rails or whatever it is and you hang out with the wrong guys. But but that's really what it was for me as well. Um, but of course, there were enough good guys around and good, you know, the, the odd angel that appeared on the scene, in my view, who just gave me an age, like a couple of my friends' parents, you know, or dads who, who would take me aside and just kind of go, this is the path you're on. And, uh, you know, you choose, you know, you're 15 or 16, you know everything now, but this is where you're going to end up if you keep doing this, you know, like, and, and I, at the time, of course, you go, yeah, right. But then I was lucky enough to break out of that cycle. So, so I, so I had for the first really 16, 17 years of my life, it was going down a, an ugly path and a lot of hurt, a lot of self-worth issues. I, I always say I spent the first 17 odd years of my life being told I was worthless and the rest of my life proving otherwise, um, and and that was was a, was difficult um, difficult to break out of that life. You know, a good friend of mine 
you know, I, I, my drug thing, you know, started getting more serious. I smoked heroin when I was 15-ish, 16, started taking hallucinogenics and LSD. You know, everything starts to escalate. The drugs, the drinking, the violence, the crime, the, you know, and, and you can see, you know, where it's all going to end. So that was it. That was the beginning of that. And so I had no real great role models apart from um, a few friends' fathers. Complete lack of trust in in people, you know, because adults had basically, you know, abused my sister, you know, and myself in different ways and uh, and just filled with fear most of the time, to be honest. No certainty, no um, just, yeah, just, just you know, this, this, this life where... I'm kind of still amazed that I'm 56 and still alive. So, so that's it. That's my cheerful, happy morning oh, story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Just, um, yeah, hard to imagine that having come from the complete opposite, uh, the, the, the cliched, uh, lovely childhood, you know, parents still married and, you know, loving, I, loving home, I love that. you know, and so, uh, can, can you tell us? Can you tell us more about some of the some of the change moments along the way? Obviously, the self esteem issues, the being told you're worthless, the the violence of your world, the precarious nature of your existence. I mean, um, so many opportunities not to be here today, not to even be alive, let alone to be successful. So, um, can you can you pinpoint sure. a, a few of the key experiences along the yeah. way that, that kind of turned your life around and yeah absolutely and, and just one thing i'll say you know it, like when i i'm speaking at an event or something and i share a bit about my my background you know i have people that come from a really beautiful background mm. and they apologize to me really you know they, they come and say i'm so sorry i had you know I had the complete opposite i had a really beautiful upbringing and i feel bad and i go my god that is something to be blessed it's mm. not a it's it's nothing to feel bad about, you know. It's 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 different circumstances. I, I don't sit here and go, bloody people that have had loving family, <laughs> you know, I hate them. You know, it's just a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and life is now. I look through my life in those lenses. Now, I, you know, one funny example I'll say these gentlemen. I, I in our house because the old lady brought me up was nuts. We we had a Christmas tree up all year. She never <laughs> took it down, right? So when I was at school, I, I, and if I would catch up with a friend or something like that, I'd go to their house, and it might be, I don't know, June or July, whenever, and I'd go and go, where's your Christmas tree? <laughs> and they'll go, well, we've only put it up at Christmas. And I'd give them a hug going, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. You know, it's like, it, it's all a matter of perspective. Yeah. Um, but but a big, uh, the biggest, biggest of turning points for me, which really um I, I i'm not a religious guy but i certainly would like to think i'm spiritual that line that many of us use these days it was it was a friday afternoon um i remember it very vividly i was just couch surfing staying at a friend's place which was the, the you know where my group of mates kind of hung out and um and i was going to get picked up that night and we we're about to go out on the town and and you know run amok do the stuff that we would do most nights of the week and uh, and I was standing at the end of the driveway, and uh, I was living in Sydney now, and um and I remember just like it, this thing that just kind of hit me. It, it was a, it was a, a moment. It was an epiphany, and it was like you know, Andrew, bang, you're here. You either turn left or you turn right. You know, left, you know what's down that path. Mm. Right is full of unknown and uncertainty and possibility and all the rest of it. 
and I had to make a decision and, and I had never felt anything so strongly in my life. And, and it, it was an epiphany. I was, it, it was, it was, a, you know, the, it was the, the sunshine coming through the cloud and hitting me. It was, an, it was a very emotive moment. And I've had a few of those in my life. And I literally went back inside the house, grabbed my stuff and hitchhiked to Townsville to just get away from where I was and start a new kind of life, just head north. And, um, and, and that was, that was the part I, I'd kind of broken away from the world that I needed to break away from. And not everyone in that world was bad. Not, you know, sure. there's some lovely people in there, you know, friends, but, but, but the, the path I was going down was getting darker and I had to break away from it. And so I went to Townsville. I, I'd somehow finished my high school certificate. I went to uni for a little while, but that didn't really work out. And then I came back to Sydney, but I was a different person then. I came back to Sydney and and it was not about drinking and it was not about being with those guys. I came back with, a, I didn't know what I was coming back to, but I came back and I had an opportunity to get a bit of part-time work in a dive shop. And I'd always had a fascination with diving. I'd learned to dive somewhere along the lines and I wanted to be a marine biologist and, you know, dive anyway. And I got a job in a dive shop when I was 17 and I, um, and I ended up buying that dive shop. You know, like it sounds all very glamorous, but it was like 20 grand. You know, it wasn't like I bought it for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it was in the 80s. You know, you walked into a bank and said, I need 20 grand. And they gave you a check um, with no security, no guarantors, no nothing. And so I bought a business and I became a business owner. And 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 I think then I, I uh, it, it was ridiculously hard. I had no idea what I was doing, but I I, I loved it. And, and I had a sense of responsibility. I, I had a sense of belonging. We had this club. There was this, there was this lovely thing that happened in a dive shop where every dive shop has a club attached to it. But but I I and I know I was the head B, and I kind of liked the fact that that people looked to me with respect and courtesy, and you know like um, it was my business and all the rest of it. And I'd never really felt that kind of respect before, and I'd never felt that. Um, I guess. Confidence is not the right word, but 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 I had a bit of belonging and I had a bit of responsibility, and and I was lucky to have a couple of people working there that I inherited with the dive shop. One guy in particular was this wild man from Papua New Guinea. He was one of my instructors there, and 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 he was just a really good man, and uh, he he lived how to win friends and influence people. He was he he, he was from the heart. He was a great communicator. And he took me under his wing without taking me under his wing because um, I was quite boisterous then and rah, rah, rah. But he, he taught me how to deal with people and, and interact and engage and be empathetic and be less, you know, you do it this way or else and be more, well, this is how I would do it. How would you do it? He taught me about inclus inclusivity and just, just so many things. Um, but I also love the side of things in the dive shop that it's something that really resonated with me is that, there, there were a lot of dysfunctional kind of people that were attracted to it and they were attracted to the club because it didn't really matter what you did. You were, you, you were all there under this, this united kind of theme of a love of the ocean and love of diving. So I would have a, a, a bricklayer who would be best buddies with one of the top neurosurgeons in Sydney and they would dive every Saturday. They'd go to best, they would never socialize together outside of it. They would never pop up and, you know, catch up at each other's places for coffee. But on Saturday morning, they were there at seven o'clock and they were diving. They would only ever dive with each other and, and the barriers were down. And, and I think I, 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 
I probably started a bit of my fascination for people and understanding and and empathizing and just just learning about people, which has become my kind of real lifelong fascination, communication and things like that, which is a bit, you know, down the rabbit hole. But 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 that that standing in that driveway was that moment. And I think we all have those mm-hmm. moments. It's just that we don't always turn right, you know, you know, that's the reality of it. We could go down all kinds of rabbit holes in in inquiry. It's an extraordinary life and so many things. The thing I'm most interested in is is how you resolve the existential angst around the upbringing. So where you started, obviously, you Mm. you might be able to tell me who said this, but um, the old adage, wherever you go, there you are. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even though you you found your way to Townsville and were able to kind of reinvent yourself and then come back to Sydney, a different person, obviously the the nature of where you started and the impact on on your self-esteem and being told you're Mm. so worthless. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by how you dealt with that. Um, You know, did, do you feel like you, um, you kind of separated yourself from that person and became someone different and just put that version of you away and, and have locked it away or have you found a way to reconcile your upbringing and where you started in a way that, um, feels like it's healed. That's uh, that, yeah. What, what do you yeah? What do you think about that? A really great question, mate. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you ever fully heal from an upbringing like that, where you you know abandonment as a child, you know, like you know, whatever that looks like. There's there's different elements, you know, of that as as a question as well. I mean, for me, it's very much a matter of. Um, at some stage, the first thing you've got to do is have gratitude and, and go, okay, you know what? Yeah, it, it was shit. It, it was tough. It was, you know, I, like, you know, I, I've given you the sanitary version of, yeah, of what yeah. that upbringing was like. It, it, it was, there, there were a lot of extraordinarily horrible things that happened to both my sister and myself in amongst that. And it's very hard to let those go. However, you know, as my life has evolved and I've, you know, look, I, I've done extraordinary things. I've I've met extraordinary people. I've travelled to extraordinary places. I've, you know, I've been, you know, successful in different ways. Um, and, and I know that, you know, I could have been brought up in a loving, caring home and not have ended up there. So you you've got to you've got to give thanks to the environment that you're in. That that I picked up something now. And say so this lady was a kleptomaniac. She was violent. Um, there was uncertainty. She hated men. She had this hate of men, even me as a little boy, all of that stuff. You know, am I angry? No. Am I violent? No. Am I, you know, a kleptomaniac? No. You know, like I, I didn't take on all of that stuff, but I've, in amongst that, there's also a lot of good stuff about her that obviously I took on the formulative years, right? I was with her for all of those. And, and so I think it, it, it can sound cliche, but you've got to be grateful for what got you here. And I tell you, I, I lead a blessed life, and she played a major role in that. Mm. There's a dark side, but I guarantee that 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 I learnt great lessons. An interesting other part about that is I, I'd never met my my mother and father, and um, I met my dad, but before that, um, I'd never you know didn't know them. I could walk past them in the street, and I would know them. And I and I was doing a, a, a therapy session with um with a, a therapist, and and she said to me. Who's had the biggest impact on you in your life? And uh, and I said my mother. And I went, wow, that's strange. I 
she's had no impact on my life, you know, but of course she had by leaving. Mm. And, and and we just, we, we unpacked it. And, you know, I told her the story and, and she said, okay, so, you know, how old was your mum? And I said, I think she was about 17, you know, so she'd had two kids out of wedlock. This is stuff I had to piece together because I don't really have the family history thing. And so um, she'd been disowned by her family. I'd ended up getting a few letters from a distant relative from her saying that her family had kicked her out because she was 60s, unmarried. She was with an Italian man. They were, you know, Italian. They were, you know, Irish family and um, two babies out of wedlock in in 1960s. You know, that's the end of the world for most proper families. Mm. Um, all, all of this other kind of stuff. So, so we, she just said, "Well, what do you think her life looked like?" And I, I knew enough from these letters to know that she wasn't very happy. My husband wasn't a, my, sorry, her boyfriend, my husband, my dad um, wasn't a very nice kind of man. Um, there was all that kind of stuff. And she she posed a question and she this therapist and she said, what if your mum leaving you with that old lady who for all intensive purposes looked like Mrs. Doubtfire <laughs> up the road, loving old grandmotherly lady that probably left you there before and can you look after the kids for a few hours and all that stuff? What if her leaving you with that old lady was an act of love, not an act of neglect? And, and you know, that was a <laughs> moment for me. And... The irony of it is, it doesn't matter whether it was or wasn't. I, I, I don't actually care. I prefer to tell myself that that's the story. She, what she did was an act of love. And, uh, and that, that was extraordinarily powerful for me. That, that was a really big moment. You know, like I have nothing but love towards my mother. And I hope I get to meet her one day. I guess, you know, she'd be 74 or something, not that old. And I hope that I, I do get to meet her one day and maybe I will. I'm pretty easy to find though. So, I think if she wanted to track me down, she could. The other side of that, though, mate, was I met my father and I I would have my own business. Things were going pretty well. I got the phone call, you know, I'm your father, out of the blue. And 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 that was that was unsettling and that's a rock your world thing. Because when you don't know them, you, you put them on a pedestal and go, oh, well, my father would be kind of right up in town on a, on a white stallion and be this knight in shining armour. Or you put them in the lowest pits of hell kind of thing you know and, and we had kind of held our mother and father up there for whatever reason and anyway i met my father and i was in my 20s and and you know it wasn't a good encounter he, he was an alcoholic we literally we picked him up at the airport and uh within on the leaving the airport he'd asked for money and asked to stop at the next bottle shop you know it's like a nine o'clock flight and it's like seriously and and then so he was there for a week and it's your father you feel this obligation to to be I don't know to be his son, and I was doing great. I, I I didn't really need a father figure in my life, and but my sister really wanted him, you know, to be around, and he ignored her basically. You know, he was only interested in me, and and that was his, probably his biggest mistake. But then he went home, and I started getting these three o'clock in the morning phone calls of oh, I love you, you know, and and I just said I I I just had to ring him one day in amongst all that, say listen, I don't even know if I like you yet, right? But I tell you what. You know, the last thing I need in my life is a drunken father. You know, so choice is yours. Never, ever ring, ring me again unless you're sober. And I never heard from him again. So, you know, I don't know if he's dead or alive. And I have no negative feeling about that. I have no guilt, no, no, oh, my God, he's your father. You know, like, and I don't know whether that's callous, whether that's whatever it is. But for me, you know, being a father takes a lot more than donating sperm. 
So I, I, yeah, you know, obviously our relationship didn't mean enough for him to stop drinking is probably what I interpret that or he didn't have the strength or, or whatever that he, he needed. So so kind of three different scenarios there, right, mm. when you think about it, three different outcomes. Um, I don't know whether you've you've read much of Freud or or understood a lot of Eno- his... enough to be dangerous, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan. I think he's a, a very intelligent guy, and and I've found a way into Freud through Peterson. Uh, his summary, I think, he, he takes some really uh, sometimes complex and easily misunderstood distinctions from Freud and summarizes them. And one of them that I found particularly useful is Freud's distinction that. Uh, the greatest human challenge is to break free from the nest and most people never will. And there are great forces at work that prevent that both from the parent and the child um, and all dysfunction comes from um, staying too long within the nest. Mm. And so um, and interesting hearing your reflection, even though you were abandoned. So it looks like, oh, there you go. Well, you didn't have to face that challenge because mm-hmm. uh, it was done for you. But then in a moment of real honesty and clarity unconsciously, there's still that connection and that clinging to, um, you know, your biological parents and still the need to process and free yourself and and through gratitude, as you mentioned, which is extraordinarily beautiful. Um, but, yeah, mm-hmm. you've obviously done a lot of work around freeing yourself and to become your own person and then go on. You, you don't you don't strike me as someone who who has bitterness or who, who is full of uh, reactionary energy to kind of, you know, um, prove yourself because of where you started. Uh, and that's a no. great credit to you to have kind of still done that work. Um, even though it's it's harder than for others who've got a visible and and present experience of mum and dad, you've kind of had to live without that. So, yeah, and that's a good summary, you know, of it as well. And, and I mean, when I I guess I talk about that proving that I'm of value, you know, you know that first seventeen years being told I'm not, and then mm. the rest of my life proving it. Realistically, I think that that actually also has shaped me. In such a way, because it's given me a moral compass to to work towards, and and I'm really really clear on my moral compass. I know what I will do, what I won't do, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable in my world in terms of how others treat me, you know, all, all of that stuff. Like, um, and and also the the ability, I think, to to reflect on things a little bit differently, to acknowledge, and it, it's you know, like success again. You know, my, my what, what success means to me, I know we all have our own kind of definition, but it's really about being a good man. Mm. You know, that's that's my that's 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 my true north is like, what does it mean to be a good man? And that means, you know, for me to be kind, to be to be generous, to be strong when I need to be, to treat others, you know, with respect, to to treat myself with respect, you know, all, all, all of those kind of things. Being successful in business is just one part of that. Um, and it's certainly, um, you know, financial success is just as we all would tend to say, but it's, but it's a small part of that. You know, my, my own, uh, my, my own moral compass each week is on a Friday at 10 o'clock when I ask myself, how am I a better man this week than I was the same time last week? Mm. And, and, and I think that a, a lot of that for me, you know, after a while, look, it's, it's like, you know, you write a book. And, and, you know, I wrote my first book and, and I was amazed anyone read it. I didn't think anyone would read it. So there was absolutely no pressure because I honestly thought no one would read it. And then when it got published by a real publisher as such, 
I thought, God, these guys, you know, like they've wasted their money, you know, and then of course it sold really well. And they say, do another one. I'm going seriously, you know, so, so the success kind of starts to come along and, and, and you, you get a certain, um, I, I guess a confidence kind of comes from, from being able to do something often more than once, you know, where, where it's not like, well, that was a fluke, mm-hmm. you know, my second book sold really well my third book fourth book you know they all sold they all became bestsellers you know and it's like wow how did that all happen you 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 get their confidence and and i think a lot of that also then comes from how you think a bit about situations and you're right i am not driven by i'm going to freaking prove you all wrong that's i'm not driven from behind by that i'm actually pulled forward by my wanting to live up to my my own value set and and to be that i, I want to die the best attribute people say to me is he was a good man that 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 one line is, is what's important to me, w- without a doubt. Mm, amazing. Um, thank you for that distinction. So your latest book, uh, you know, someone has to be the most expensive. Love to explore the philosophy behind that for a moment. Yeah, but I imagine sure. that um, in order to be the most expensive, there has to be a high level of personal security because if you don't understand your own value, how in the world is anyone else supposed to reflect that back to you? And so yeah, yeah, it's so, a great point. Um, you know, what's your philosophy on the importance of operating from a per, from a place of great personal security? Yeah, and, and I think that that in research, in this book I've been researching for 20 years, you know, like I, I learned this lesson when I had, well, longer, when I had my dive shop 40 years ago, you know, that, that you know, being cheap and being the cheapest and running a scarcity-based, you know, kind of business you are constantly in a place of uncertainty and constantly in a place of insecurity because there's always someone who's going to come along and do it cheaper. It's just yeah. that's, the, that's the nature of, of the beast, cheaper and somehow better, you know, in, in whatever it might be. And, uh, and I had a major transformation in my business where, where I went from being the cheapest to the most expensive through a fortuitous encounter with someone. And, you know, again, my life is one long story, right? And, and, and I looked at that and went, wow, my, my entire business changed. And that started a fascination for me because I saw that what changed the most when I went from being the cheapest to the most expensive was actually what, what changed in my head. You know, when I started to appreciate value and quality and, and instead of selling cheap crap dive gear, we sold the most expensive dive gear on the market and we sold more of it. And, and people didn't bring it back five minutes after they bought it because it <laughs> fell apart in their hands. And they're going to live longer because they had decent gear. And, and, and it, you know, and, and I, I saw that. And over the years, I've seen that in so many other businesses. And we've got this, the, the birth of hipsters who, who are the masters of doing one thing and doing it really well, mm-hmm. whether it's making cheese, whether it's being an accountant, being a, whatever it is. The hipster revolution, which I write about in the book, transforms stuff. $75 to get a shave. You kidding me? You know, but. <laughs> They get experience, they get this quality, they get that whole thing. So I've become a bit of a student of this looking around the world and seeing, you know, how people can can really be they're confident enough to offer, to, to, to believe in themselves, that they know that what they have is of value and, and they just have this, this self-belief that comes from where they position themselves in the marketplace, where people say, oh, my God, he or she, they are the most expensive on the face of the planet, but they are the best. You know, I, I, I got a great mate of mine uh, whose name is Peter Lick, who's a photographer, landscape photographer, he's an Australian guy. 
Um, a couple of years, he's in America, basically well, he lives in Greece now, but he's based out of America. And he uh, he sold a couple of years ago, he sold three of his images for $10.4 million. Right now, this is he's a landscape photographer. This is at a time when everyone's got a camera. There's a million landscape photographers. Everyone's a landscape photographer. We all got an iPhone. You know, all the rest of it, and everyone's going, oh, you know, like all the price of images has been diluted, rah, rah. Yet how does this guy go along and sell 10.3, 10.4 million US dollars? Or Aussie? Huge amount for three images. And, and the reason was I've never known anyone who has more confidence and more um, belief in in themselves, you know, than Peter Lick. But in the same vein, I've never met anyone who works as hard as mm-hmm. Peter Lick, you know. And, and he just has this incredible commercial. He, he knows what people want to buy, and he's just he's so prepared to say it's. And now he regularly sells images for a million dollars. Like like this this is not this this big anomaly, but. He sold me, me and two million, three million. He just made the Guinness Book of Records for this because he got one image was six point four, which is the most anyone's ever paid for one photograph um, in history. So you know, so you look at that, and I I look at people like Pete and go, wow, another friend you know makes walking sticks. And you go, wow, that's kind of weird. Eighty five thousand dollars for a walking stick. Yeah, I mean, who who buys them? Rich CEOs who want to give them to their parents to as a you know status symbol. So it's not just about the dollar value. It's actually also, though, about those people who just are the best at what they do, whether it's making croissants, making camembert cheese or running an Airbnb, whatever it is. And they, they, that they worked out the formula between being comfortable with charging the most and delivering the most. And, and, and I'm fascinated by that. You know, even these glasses I've got, probably some of the most expensive glasses on the face of the planet. And, <laughs> You go to the website, you can buy, can't even buy glass. You can't do anything. These guys are like the the, the CIA of glasses, <laughs> this Japanese kind of quasi-company. You go, how do they do it? Like once a year, there's this closet kind of showing in Australia. You get like a, okay, it's going to be on on Saturday. Come and do the viewing. Remember, code word is Russia. Wear dark glasses. <laughs> you turn up at this place and the, and the guy kind of opens the case and it's like, I've scored drugs in far less, you know, shady places. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and it's just a just a, an interesting kind of fascination. So 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 for me, the, this relationship between confidence and self worth, and and being proud of what you do and passionate about what you do, all roll together. And, and of course, the big thing is that I see in business now this big challenge is, you know, it's the race to the bottom. You know, it, it, there's so many people that are fighting in the space of. You know, cheap, 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 or price, price, price. The most expensive space is uncluttered because most people aren't actually brave enough to play in that space because they lack the confidence. Well, of course, plenty of people great at what they do, but then feel undermined by their own fear of being found out. The you know the imposter syndrome. Completely. What if someone Completely. exposes me? So yeah, so that security, confidence to go. Okay, I own my own value, so then I'm I'm able to stand up and demand what I'm worth. Mm. it's a it's, it's a big it's a tr- it's, it's a big thing to get to that space mm. but, but but like most things i think that i find mate i'm sorry i, I might have cut you off there what what i think is what, once you do it once it's like i think the first time that i had ever charged 10 grand as a speaker you you think well i'll never no one will ever pay that yeah, again yeah. you know the old thing of like oh my god you know like i tricked them you know and then yes. someone else comes along and pays it go really and then someone else and someone else. And then you have the conversation. Well, maybe I'm too cheap. 
yeah. you know, you, 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 your, I guess your reference points change. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that when I made a big transition in my own coaching, I was charging a thousand dollars for my coaching services and, and it was always such a struggle to sell that. And the kind of people I was attracting were the wrong you know, people. Sorry. The wrong people. Well, they were because they're the people that could never afford, even afford a thousand dollars. And so, it was always such a difficult process. And I always felt like I had to do way more work than I was getting rewarded for, but I couldn't. I thought, well, no one's paying $1,000, so how, I'm already too expensive. Um, yep. But the process of going internally, going, hang on a minute, you know, I'm solving one of the most, one of the world's most difficult problems, most important problems. I can't see anyone else is solving it like I can do. All right, I have to own my own value first. I don't care if no one ever pays for me again. I will never solve this problem for less than $6,000. That, that was the figure in my mind. Yeah, great. Um, and then the next day, the next conversation I showed up to, all right, what's it going to cost for me to work with you? Uh, six grand. And and they're like, cool, could we start straight away? Yeah. And yeah. so um, then <laughs> just the transition instantly overnight, you know, multiplying my price by, you know, such an extraordinary increment. Um, and then I was like, cool, well, if I could sell up six, you know, you know now, now the price is 12. Um, and exactly. so- Exactly. And it's still, I still feel like, you know, people are getting $100,000 ROI um, yeah, yeah, right. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? Though you know, you, you you've got to appreciate what. It's not about tricking someone. You haven't you haven't won. It, you you got to believe that 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 you're offering extraordinary value. Mm. You know, like it it has to be that you know I, I I am really good at what I do and being okay. Those words though are very hard for a lot of us to say. You know, I, like I would never have said that. You know, way back when. Mate, I, I like now. I will say I am a fantastic presenter. I'm a great author. You know, I'm a I'm an excellent coach, and, and I and I will own that. And and I will. But there was a time, you know, there's no way I could have said those words, and 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 certainly not have you believe it as a prospective client. You know, like I, I could. I, I'm a, I, I'm a really good speaker. Mm. You know, it's like there'll be others that are a lot better than me. You know, but but you know, if there's no one else, you can you, you know, you got to own it and believe it. And I think that that's when there's enough evidence that comes in that that we do that. You know, like what one of my simplest of things that I've done all my life um, is have a success board. And and you know, we're literally on January first. I, I have a, a like a board at home, and uh, and I and I wipe it all clean. And then on, from that time on, I just post-it note all of my or write on there. It's, it's a mess, but it's every success. And it's not just financial. It's like, you know, lost five kilos or went to, you know, Las Vegas for a trip. Whatever it is, they're all my successes. And at the end of the year, I kind of put them onto a sheet. You know, this is my, my successes because we forget 90% of the things that we did during the year that were successful for us. Mm. We remember the biggies, that one big contract or this. Excuse me, but not all the others, and 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 those days when when my confidence is is lacking or I'm a bit shaky ground or whatever it is, I look over at my success board and go, "Holy crap, that's what an amazing!" Oh, I'd forgotten about I forgot about that interview, James. I forgot about this. I forgot about that, and I've kept all of my success boards for the last twenty years. You know, like just the lists, and so there's enough evidence to tell me that I'm a good writer, that I'm a great writer. There's enough evidence to say that I'm a great speaker because I've done hundreds of speaking jobs in 25 countries around the world. There's enough evidence to get there. And and then that, that you know, the, the little voices are dulled. 
when when you know the little voice can say well you're not a very good speaker and you go well i beg to differ <laughs> you know like or you're not a very good writer or you're you know unsuccessful as an author because you haven't sold enough books like jk rowling and you know and, and you kind of go well you know but but i've got 14 books that have been sold in 65 countries and you, you know like there's enough even more importantly is i've got thousands of emails from people and letters and cards and you know, thousands upon thousands of these from people saying, oh my God, your book changed my life. You're this. So, so collecting the evidence along the way of the success, uh, I think is really important because I think that we do forget, we, we, we forget the stuff and our human nature can be that we, we focus on what we didn't achieve and all the yeah, rest of course. it as well, yeah. you know. Uh, amazing. So as an author, I'm sure you read a lot of other people's books as well. Have there been key books along the way that have been particularly useful to you that you go back to specifically around this internal work, this confidence piece, mm. this uh, understanding, owning your own value and worth, Any anything that stands out to you? I, I, I read a, a huge amount uh, and I have over the years, sometimes more than others. But but if I'm really honest, the most the book that 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 changed so much for me was given to me by that guy I told you about from the dive shop. And he gave me how to win friends and influence people um, way, way back then. And uh, again, there are far more complex books out there, but I read that book every year at Christmas. Mm -hmm. I've read it 40 odd times now. And, uh, and every time I read it, uh, there's something that I pick up on that I, you know, haven't got. And, and for me, a big part of my success has been my ability to connect and engage with people. You know, I, I put a lot of time and effort into communicating with people and being, I turn up, I'm always fully present. I know I treat people, whoever I'm dealing with, with respect. Um, I, I learned a lot. That, and that book really started my personal growth journey and my professional development. It taught me about that whatever I want to achieve in life, I know that the best way forward for me to do that is to be better at 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 communicating and and connecting and engaging so the old thing as much as i hate the title of that book it sounds so controlling um it was pivotal for me you know on that and and you know again i like i've done so read so many books there's there's so many there but that, that's the one that i keep going back to every christmas i i read that and i watch uh it's a uh, what a wonderful life with jimmy stewart you know like that's you know, that whole thing, what the world looked like if you weren't there and that appreciation, you know, rah, rah. And they're my little annual trigger mm. kind of re-reflecting things. Um, and, you know, another part, a big part about this, I know it's not about reading books, but it's just, you know, I, I, I'm very, very tight about who's in my world. Mm. You know, I'm very, very, you know, I, I I don't have anyone negative in my world. I, I don't, to be honest, I don't kind of let them in. I, I I protect I protect myself from negative stuff very tightly, very and 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 I have done that all my life. And sometimes people can say I can be a bit aloof or a bit, you know, hard to get through to. But that's the kind of barrier I guess that I put up, you know, in some respects to just you know to make sure that I stay the best version of myself. Mm. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing so honestly and openly about your journey. Thank you for being who you are and the work you're doing in the world. Uh, where is the best place for people to find you and to dive into your work if they haven't come across you before now? Just andrewgriffiths.com. 
that's a, a, a easiest place. All Rosalie there. Connect with me on social if you want to. Facebook, you know, um, Insta, LinkedIn, all those kind of things. Um, by all means, and, and mate, it's been a, a lovely conversation for me to have as well. I like talking about this stuff, Jamie. And I, I, you know, to me, this is what success is about. Mm. It, it is is you know battling you know winning the battle you know but taking the dean you know like getting the demons out of your life and just i don't know you know like that just being that good person it, it sounds so so simple and all the rest of it but i don't know they're, they're conversations that i love having and you know for me as, as a business coach and speaker most of what i do is personal development mm-hmm. as well right because i know that if you want to be you know you want a better business become a better person you know, like you, you know, you what, whatever that looks like, and and it's, it's, it's a lifetime kind of task. I, I got, I do it one week at a time, and some weeks I'm not a better person than I was the week before, you know. But I'm kind of keep heading in that right direction, uh, and that's, you know, that's probably my biggest message for people is you don't wake up and be the best version of yourself. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a pathway to get there. But you know, you get a little bit closer every day, and and lots of Lots of things change in your world the more you can kind of live that true, you know, kind of true existence, I think. Mm. Uh, Thank you for a lovely conversation. Uh, We'll leave it there. Thank you, mate. Great to chat to you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Insecurity Project podcast. All you need to solve any problem is the proven framework and someone skillful enough to hold you in the space until it works. If this is your year to be insecurity free, jump on the insecurityproject.com and begin your journey to become unhindered by getting a free copy of the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity.